You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR and welcome to Listening Notes, stories about politics, art and activism and conversations about the issues affecting our lives. I'm Judith Peppard and I'll be taking you through for the next half hour. And thank you again to Black Noise Radio for great conversations on their show today. I begin by acknowledging that 3CR is broadcasting from the land of the Kulin Nations, the true owners, custodians and caretakers of this land, and I pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded, always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. Today on Listening Notes, we're going to be looking at a new project on the history of infertility in Australia. Shannon Healy from La Trobe University will tell us more about that, and that's coming up later in the show. But first to Parliament. If you've been watching the news, you probably know that a new bill, the COVID-19 Omnibus Emergency Measures and Other Acts Amendment Bill 2020, passed the Victorian House of Assembly on September the 18th and it's now headed for the Legislative Council. But organisations like the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Human Rights Watch, Liberty Victoria and the Victorian Bar are all saying the bill goes too far in broadening the powers of the police with little or no oversight. Jude McCulloch is a Professor Emerita of Criminology at Monash University and has worked for many years as a lawyer in community legal centres She's written a paper for the conversation entitled Expanding Victoria's Police Powers Without Independent Oversight is a Dangerous Idea. We caught up last Thursday and I began by asking Jude McCulloch why she'd written the paper. While I generally respect the measures that have been put in place in Victoria by the Labor Andrews government and recognise that they're there to protect the public... I felt that this proposed legislation was qualitatively different. It seems to be arbitrary. It hasn't really been rationalised fully by the government. It gives a whole lot of power to people who are unqualified in health issues to make decisions about health and use coercive powers that will have a big impact on people's lives. It's an important piece of legislation with significant consequences in the way we view and operate in a democracy and it seemed to have passed with very little comment at least in the lower house. So with this new bill the COVID-19 omnibus this one as you say is a different matter and you've identified three concerns the breadth of the powers authorized under it the expertise of those authorized to use the powers and the lack of independent oversight and review so I'd like to discuss each of those First of all, the breadth of the powers authorised under it. The powers are quite broad, or they allow authorised officers to detain people who are seen as high risk, and that's people who've had a COVID diagnosis or a close contact with someone who has such a diagnosis. If they form a reasonable belief that there's a likelihood that the person won't comply with an order to isolate... So to me and others like Civil Liberties Victoria and the Bar Council think that that power is too wide. 
in that a person doesn't have to fail to comply with an order. They only have to be thought to be likely not to comply. That makes the power preemptive. The authorised officer has to have a reasonable belief that they're likely not to comply with any order. What would form the basis of a reasonable belief isn't set out. A reasonable belief is subjective. So if the authorised officer only has to reasonably believe that they're likely not to comply and they're not given any guidance as to what might form that reasonable belief, and particularly if they're not a health expert, how will they form that reasonable belief? If it's not based on anything the person has done or it's not required to be based on anything the person has done, I think the reasonable belief will be viewing people as the usual suspects or through a lens of prejudice. Because if you're not given guidance as to what is likely to be the future behaviour of someone, how do you form a basis? We know that certain communities are over-policed as potential suspects and offenders and that really reflects and reinforces social hierarchical structures. Tremendous over-policing, which is being ongoing for many, many generations of Indigenous people. And we've seen with the COVID police response that the burden of that is falling most heavily on Indigenous and lower socioeconomic areas. So we'd expect that these preemptive powers to detain would be used against the same people. But it's not just the preemptive nature of the power, the subjective nature of the power. It's the open-ended time for detention as well, which is until the urgency or the emergency has passed. It's very open-ended. Some people have referred to it as indefinite. Sorry to interrupt, Jude, but as you're describing this, it sounds terrifying. You were talking about detaining uh, indefinitely. I would probably call it open-ended with no end date or time by which it needs to be reviewed based on the reasonable belief that the health issue has passed. Back to your point about terrifying, although there's a diversity of opinion, the Andrews government is a progressive government. It's one of only three governments in Australia to have introduced something like a Charter of Human Rights, which we've got in Victoria. It's introduced a treaty or treaty negotiations with First Nations people. I think it's the only state or jurisdiction in Australia to have done that. But that doesn't mean that any types of power are justified and also beyond that, and I think it's really important, even if people trust this government and the polls say generally they do, this sets a precedent. The government has said this is to protect the people of Victoria, to drive the numbers low, and Daniel Andrews directly said it strikes the right balance. But I would argue, along with concerned legal groups, that there aren't the right checks and balances here if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Jude McCulloch, professor in criminology at Monash University. As Jude has explained, many groups are concerned about the breadth of the powers in the bill, but they're also concerned about the expertise of the people who are authorised to use those powers. The bill gives very broad powers to the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services to appoint authorised officers on extremely broad criteria. Those criteria don't in any way indicate or require 
that the authorised officers have health expertise. And it's assumed that police, protective services officers who are part of the police force, but they're the ones that typically patrol, for example, public transport and private security agents would also be authorised officers. So I see a problem with the range of people who can be authorised who don't have health expertise. And two, I see a particular problem with Victoria Police based on some of the behaviour, especially around excessive use of force, captured particularly on film, quite visible, against people who are suffering a mental health crisis or disability support pensioner, for example, which seem to indicate really high levels of what seems to be gratuitous force. And the second part of concern about particularly the police is in Victoria, as is typical in most jurisdictions in Australia, the police typically investigate themselves. There was a joint parliamentary inquiry into the oversight of police in Victoria in 2018, or which brought down a final report in 2018, which made 69 recommendations for reform. So, for example, that all serious misconduct allegations need to be investigated by the independent broad-based anti-corruption commission, IBAC. Those recommendations haven't been implemented and it's more than two years now since the report came down. So we have the situation in Victoria where 98% of complaints against police are investigated by police. And there's also seems to be a lack of review of it the decision to detain. So the Bar Council of Victoria recommended, and I agree, that any decision to detain should be reviewed within 24 hours by the Chief Medical Officer. That seems particularly important if the bill passes in relatively the same form because there will be potentially non-health experts making that decision. I want to come back now to the point you've made that, um, you know, Dan Andrews says that the measures are are necessary. But so many people have now criticised. Human Rights Watch has made a statement. A number of people have been very concerned, expressed those concerns. I'm curious about what kind of power the police have. All the scholarship and history indicates internationally that it's very difficult to reform policing and oversight of policing. Substantive, independent, effective accountability for police is very difficult to achieve often. And that has to do with the political clout of the police, the strength of the police association, the symbiotic relationship between the police and the media, the idea that if we restrain the police in any way, that they'll be less able to protect the public rather than saying, well, the police are a vital part of maintaining human rights. But also, if you look around the world, they're critical actors in violating human rights. Minority communities, particularly racialised communities, colonial countries like Australia, there's those continuing history of colonial power relationships that the police reflect and reinforce. There are some examples in the world where really effective oversight of police, not many, Northern Ireland's one of them, part of the peace process there in the early 2000s. But generally, politically, they're seen as high costs in upsetting the police 
and the police typically are upset by a shift to really effective, substantially independent oversight. So two years since the Joint Parliamentary Inquiry made its 69 recommendations about improving police oversight in Victoria, and none of those recommendations have been implemented. So there does seem to be a lack of political will there. Yes, and people listening here at 3CR, I know we're going to be very concerned about this bill. We have a very diverse community here and programming here at 3CR. What can people listening do if they're concerned? The major thing they can do is write to the newspapers, you know, engage with the media on these issues where they have the opportunity to and they're inclined to, but always writing to parliamentarians. There is a police accountability network in Victoria which is very active and shares a lot of information and provides advice about how to get involved. I would suggest joining in those campaigns. Getting informed is the best start and communicating concerns to politicians, particularly those crossbenchers. Jude McCulloch, a professor emerita of criminology at Monash University. Her paper will be available on the website for listening notes uh, here at 3CR. And just after my conversation with Jude, I received a media release from the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service expressing similar concerns and pointing out that early on in the pandemic, the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention called upon all states to respect the absolute prohibition of arbitrary deprivation of liberty as public health emergency measures were being introduced to combat the pandemic. You're on 3CR. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. If I have my tongue, 500 languages I would sing to you. This is Monica Jasmine Caro. I'm a proud Gunai Kurnai, Gunishmara and Mukjawait woman. I'm a spoken word poet, actor and musician and you are listening to 3CR Community Radio. And I love Community Radio because it is about representation and accessibility for all peoples of all walks of life. And I must have a home somewhere I belong. And you are on 3CR on this Monday afternoon, all wintry again, but it's spring in Victoria and um, this is how it is. I'm Judith Peppard and the show is Listening Notes. Shannon Healy is a historian from La Trobe University and she's begun work on a study of the ways in which women's experiences of infertility have changed since the post-war period. This research will form the basis of the first history of infertility in Australia. 
And just a warning, if this raises any issues for you, the conversation will go on probably for the next 10 minutes. I began by asking Shannon Healy how she became interested in the history of infertility in Australia. It was a personal experience. My husband and I started trying for a baby and went through a year or so of trying without any luck and then ended up realising that we needed to use IVF. And that ended up becoming a really long and pretty torturous experience for us. As a historian, my first instinct was to look for histories, to look for the stories of other women who had gone through this. And I was totally shocked when I realised that there just weren't those stories being written. It became a, a bit of a passion of mine to start collecting stories and and whenever in my other research I came across anything in the archives that was related to infertility I squirreled it away in the hope that I would eventually have the time and the space to take on this project in a proper and meaningful way. What kind of archival material is available if anything? It's an ephemeral topic and this is part of the issue that it is a topic of a lot of secrecy and shame and that is not talked about historically and I think also to a large degree today. And so it's not something that is widely discussed in popular culture, for instance, but it does come up. So, for instance, there might be advertisements for couples who are trying to conceive in women's magazines, newspapers, doctor's advice columns. And there are quite a few medical columns which talk about advances in treatment for a range of issues. And every now and then fertility comes up. How far back would these kinds of articles go? I have found quite a lot of material going well back to the beginning of the 20th century. And I expect that there would also be material going further back into the 19th century and looking at other countries. So in America, for instance, the researchers doing those histories found plenty of this sort of archival material going well back into the, even to the 18th century. And it sounds like from what you're saying that the focus is usually on women. It is. It's very much considered to be a women's issue, even though almost half the time it can be um, the man who has fertility issues. That's a part of the gender dynamic of this, is that even now, regardless of who is the person who has infertility, it is the woman who bears the brunt of the treatment and the invasiveness of that treatment as well. You are looking at Australia from the 1950s to 2010. Why have you chosen that time frame? So this is an oral history of women's experiences of infertility. The time period is framed by the accessibility of people who can tell their stories. And we really see from that period such huge changes in the political and medical and social contexts in which women were experiencing infertility. So you have the baby boom of the 1950s and then second wave feminist movement of the 60s and 70s and the incredible advances in medicine that meant that women suddenly had access to contraception. They also had increasing access to safe uh, abortion. Then we had the advances in the treatment of infertility. The first child born by IVF was uh, 1980 in Australia and internationally it was 1978. So we weren't far behind in Australia in terms of the technology and the availability of it. It's just such a rapidly changing landscape and changing time that I think it had huge repercussions on how women felt about their own bodies and their own experiences. Yes. And I mean, just from what you know so far, you'll obviously find out a lot more from your research, but what do you feel is the impact on women's lives? 
It's extraordinarily complicated. And I think that's part of the reason why writing an oral history, instead of sort of trying to find a neat answer to that, it opens up the dialogue and the discussion. What I'm hoping will come out of this is rather than sort of a single story, many different stories that say there's no one way to respond to this, there is no one way that a woman might decide to treat it or to not treat it. So you're looking for women from lots of different backgrounds, lots of different cultures and experiences. You wanted to reflect the richness of of our culture here in Australia. I understand you've begun reaching out uh, to women, like you've been advertising for participants. How have you done that? I've been putting advertisements out through social media, Facebook and Twitter and and even Instagram these days are really good platforms for advertising for participants. What's the response been like? Encouraging. I think there's a sense that people really have not had the opportunity to talk about this, to share these experiences. Also, there's a sense that this needs to be brought out into the open. Women are really wanting to contribute to that discussion. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Shannon Healy, and we're talking about a study she's just begun on the history of infertility in Australia. It's an oral history, focusing on the time between the 1950s and 2010. I asked Shannon about the significance of the study, what it will add to the historical record. People feel a sense of belonging by hearing stories that resonate with them, that make them feel that they are not alone. This was my own personal experience, as as I said earlier. So when those stories are left out of histories, it means that we have a society that is not entirely inclusive. That sense of lack of inclusivity, of lack of belonging, affects people's well-being. As historians, we tell stories because we learn from the past, but also because through telling these stories, we feel connected. What I want to do is make it possible for women who are going through this now to feel that they are not alone, to feel that they are not the first person or the only person to be going through this. And the bigger historical picture, what's it adding When you think about histories of gender and histories of women, sort of historically speaking as a relatively new area of research, and there has been some really wonderful work done on histories of women's reproduction. Primarily that has focused around things to do with access to contraception, um, access to abortion, access to equality of care. This is a really big piece of the puzzle that is missing. We have these stories, these norms, if you like, these normalised ideas about what it means to be a woman that this woman suddenly finds she doesn't fit into. So we need to open up those stories and tell those histories because all these stories matter. And when we have silences and gaps in the historical record, we're not allowing for the full complexity of an understanding of the past. So you're calling out for women to participate. And I guess, as you said, you know, it's a sensitive issue. How will you be looking after the women who offer to participate? That is a really good question. So first of all, I'm very open to discussing with the women who contact me that this may be distressing at times for them. As long as we are aware of that, then if it becomes too difficult for a woman to talk about this she's well and truly in control of the conversation and of the interview and can stop it pause it take a break decide not to do it as well if at any time anybody decided that they did not want to be involved then then we just stop and um, I don't use their material in the lead up to the interview I'm just making sure that the people I'm talking to have a support network 
So have somebody they can contact and talk to if this does bring up any trauma or any discomfort for them. And I'm also just checking in constantly throughout the conversation, throughout the interview, but also afterwards as well. And then the last thing is that there are some really good helplines and websites where people can find more information as well and find support. I think the first and foremost thing is just making sure that they know that at any time, if they decide they want to stop, that they can. Yes. And so if someone is interested in finding out more information, like people just might be interested in the study itself, or if women are interested in participating how can they find out more they can visit my page on the latrobe website and twitter is probably the best place to follow me because that's where i do share most of the information about this um, project and my handle is at shannon underscore healy shannon is s-i-a-n-a-n underscore h-e-a-l-y otherwise just google me and you'll find me pretty quickly (laughs) and information about the project there shannon healy an historian from La Trobe University. And if you are interested in finding out more about the study or would like to participate, I'll put a link to Shannon's details on the Listening Notes website here at 3CR. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. There's plenty of specialist music programs to choose from on the 3CR grid. Explore the 3CR schedule online at 3cr.org.au. This is our vibration. Check out Music Sans Frontier. Great voices. Music Matters. The Hip Sister Hop Show. The Heavy Session. The Planet X Radio Show. Satellite Skies. Shindig. Sweet Dreams. Tune in to 3CR 855 AM on your digital radio or streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Let our music make you happy. Well, all that music got me smiling, and I hope you did too. And we're coming to the end of Listening Notes. Big thanks to our two guests, Jude McCulloch and Shannon Healy. And stay tuned for the always fabulous Diaspora Blues. It's been great to have your company this afternoon, and I'll catch you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.